Hello, I'm Ian. And I'm Jenny. And we're going to be reading from John chapter 18, starting at verse 28. In the New International Version, this section's entitled, Jesus Before Pilate. John chapter 18, starting at verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. 
When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Hi, it's great to be with you today. My name is Ollie. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Stephen's. I'm going to be giving our sermon today. But as we begin, let's come before God in prayer. Please pray with me. Almighty God, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. May you work through it now to grow us and shape us to be like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Who do you follow? I don't know if you've ever put much thought into that, but whether consciously or unconsciously, we all have someone we follow. We all have people we admire and want to be like. And so that then impacts on so many different spheres of our life and might impact on the way we speak and on what we say. We want to be like them. Or it might impact on the way we dress, what we wear. We want to imitate them because we think they're cool. We want to dress like they do. Uh, this happened at a particular church in America. The lead pastor started wearing a particular type of hat. And so everyone in the church started wearing that same hat because they admired him and they wanted to be like him. Uh, which might explain why I'm wearing what I'm wearing. Because I want to imitate, I want to be like a certain someone. Now, I'm not cool enough yet to be able to pull off a Ralph Lauren polo shirt. But this will have to do for now. But it impacts on all sorts of different spheres of life. Maybe those we follow impacts on what we want to do with our life, what we want to work as. We admire our parents or a particular teacher that's had a big influence on us or someone else. And that determines what we want our occupation to be. Or it might impact on some other sphere of life. See, who we follow impacts so much of life. In fact, who we follow is such a big thing now that there's a, even a job called being an influencer. There's people whose whole job is to gather as many followers as they can and then 
get paid to eat certain foods or wear certain clothes because companies know that if that person does it, so many others will do it too. This is a big deal. Who we follow matters. And so we need to ask them, who is it that we're following? Or maybe who is it we should follow? Because there's all sorts of people we could follow. We could follow politicians. Despite uh, a difficult time of it earlier on in the year with the bushfires, Scott Morrison has actually handled this coronavirus situation fairly well, all things considered. And he's shown himself to be a leader worth following. Or maybe we could follow sports players, AFL players or tennis players or cricketers. They're often good role models and there's certainly lots of people in our community that look to them and follow after them. Or we could follow those greats of history, Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa. They're certainly admirable people to follow after. See, there's so many different people that we could follow. And in a sense, following all of them, there's an aspect of that that would be good. But what we see in John chapter 18 and John chapter 19 is that there's someone even better to follow. A king that's not like any other king. A king that's different to every other king that's existed. A king that's not in it for himself, but is in it for his people. A king who doesn't get swept up in the petty squabbling of this world, but has his eyes set on higher things. A king who lays down his life for his people. And what we see in John chapter 18 and 19 is that Jesus is this king. And we find out a number of things about this king. We find out that Jesus is an otherworldly king. We find out that Jesus is an innocent king. We find out that Jesus is a condemned king. And perhaps most importantly of all, we find out that Jesus is a saviour king. See, Jesus is a king like no other and a king that we should be following. And so uh, our story starts off seeing that Jesus is an otherworldly king. As we saw last week, Jesus has just been arrested by the Jewish leaders. And so now they take him to Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem. And they want Pilate to make the decision to execute Jesus. Pilate comes out to them. It's the middle of the Passover celebration. So they don't want to go into his house because they don't want to become ceremonially unclean. Now, uh, this in itself is a deeply ironic thing. These guys have just aided and abetted one of the greatest injustices of all time. And yet now they're concerned about a ceremonial uncleanness. And yet, nevertheless, they are. And so Pilate comes out to them. And did you see his question there in verse 29? Have a look with me. What charges are you bringing against this man? Pilate comes out and he does what any good judge would do. He asks, what are the charges? What has this man done wrong? Now, it's a simple enough question in one sense, but it's one that the Jewish leaders actually find difficult to answer because Jesus hasn't actually done anything, at least not anything worthy of being executed. And so they kind of dodge the question. They say this ridiculous thing of, oh, well, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. I mean, what a stupid thing to say. But that's all they've got. That's all they can say, because Jesus hasn't done anything. Pilate's not impressed. And so have a look at verse 31. He says to them, 
taken yourselves and judge with him by your own law. Deal with it yourselves. But see, that's a problem for the Jewish leaders because they can't execute anyone. They're not allowed to execute anyone. Only the Romans could deal out capital punishment. And so they keep hounding Pilate until finally he goes in to talk to Jesus. And as he goes in and talks to Jesus, he asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this might seem like quite a simple and straightforward question, but we've got to remember the climate that this is in. In the politically charged climate of Roman occupation of Jerusalem, any kind of claim that someone was the king of the Jews is a dangerous claim to make. And so Jesus counters back with the question himself. He says, where did you hear that? Did you come up with that yourself? Or did someone else tell you that? Pilate then kind of goes back again and shows his exasperation. He's frustrated with this whole situation. He thinks this is a Jewish issue and he wants the Jews to deal with it themselves. And so have a look at verse 35. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Now, this is perhaps the most straightforward question that Jesus has faced so far in his whole trial. And so he gives a straightforward answer, though it's one that Pilate can't possibly comprehend. Jesus tells him he is a king, but a different kind of king. He's an otherworldly king. We see it in verse 36. Jesus is not a king like any king on this earth. And see, this is why Jesus is a king worth following. He's a king who's not caught up in the petty squabbles of leaders of this world. He's not a leader who's focused on opinion polls or on money. Jesus is an otherworldly leader who's focused on something different. And did you see what it is he's focused on? He's focused on the truth. Have a look at verse 37. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is an otherworldly king, focused on truth. Not focused on money or fame, on power or privilege, but on the truth. He champions the truth. And see, that's why he's a much better person to follow, a much better person to look up to. Much better than politicians or AFL players. Much better than a mentor we've been influenced by throughout our lives. Much better even than our parents. Because Jesus is a king who's focused on the truth. Instead of the sword, Jesus wields the truth. Instead of seeking to conquer, Jesus seeks to proclaim the truth. Instead of building his kingdom on wealth and riches, Jesus seeks to build his kingdom on the proclamation of the truth of goodness and justness and righteousness. So if we'd like the truth, then we have to follow after Jesus, the otherworldly king who's the champion of the truth. But he's not just an otherworldly king, he's also an innocent king. Because Pilate isn't interested in the truth, he just kind of muses, what is truth? In fact, he'd fit in well in, post, in our postmodern society today where truth is relative. But regardless, 
Pilate goes back out to the crowd and he declares his verdict, innocent. Have a look at verse 38. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate knows an innocent man when he sees one. He knows Jesus hasn't done anything, that this is merely the petty jealousy of the religious leaders. And just like Caiaphas last week, what we see here is that Pilate is actually speaking far better than he actually realises. Because Jesus is far more innocent than even Pilate thinks. Jesus is an innocent king, a king who has never once bent the truth to avoid discomfort. A king who has never once used his position and power for his own benefit. A king who has never once used his power to threaten or oppress those beneath him. Jesus is a king like no other, a completely and utterly innocent king. And surely we want to follow someone like that. But for Pilate, truth is relative and pragmatism wins the day. And so he tries to make a deal with the Jews. He says, this man is innocent, but let's make a deal. Why not release him at this customary time? And it's quite a smart move by Pilate, because what it does is allows the Jewish leaders not to lose face, as they would have if Pilate had publicly declared Jesus innocent. But it also means the innocent man goes free. Win-win. But the Jewish leaders won't have it. They're determined for Jesus' blood. In fact, so determined are they that they're even willing for a murderer to be released instead of Jesus. Which is incredible. Even at his sentencing, this innocent king is saving the lives of others. In fact, what we see there is actually this wonderful little glimpse of the gospel. Because Barabbas' name actually means son of the father. And so what we see here is that the guilty son of the father is let free, while the true innocent son of the father is killed in his place. It's this wonderful little glimpse of the gospel. We then see Pilate's pragmatism again. He says, maybe getting Jesus flogged will satisfy them. But that's no little thing. Roman floggings could and did kill people. They involved being whipped with a whip that had little chunks of metal and stone and bone in them, and they would dig into the flesh and tear out chunks. And once Jesus has been flogged, they then mock and humiliate him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they dress him in purple, the colour of kings at that time. And Pilate then brings him out and he says, Behold your king, beaten and bruised, dressed to mock and humiliate. This is our innocent king. But again, even though Pilate intends this to mock, he's actually acting far beyond what he knows because he presents exactly the kind of king that Jesus is. He's the kind of king that would be mocked and humiliated for those who follow him. He's the kind of king that would be beaten and bruised for his followers. He's the kind of king that would die so that his people might live. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. And as Pilate has him up there intended to mock and humiliate, it actually shows us the true nature of this innocent king. An innocent king who would give up his life for the sake of his people.
And isn't that the kind of king we want to follow? Don't we want to follow after someone like that? But deep down, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. And so he again contends and wants the he wants to try and release Jesus. But the religious leaders won't have it. And so verse 6, have a look. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw Jesus, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! We can scarcely put into words the horror of this situation. The created calling for the blood of their creator. And yet they did. But we also need to remember that at times, so do we. See, as much as we like to look to the cross for salvation, which it is, and that is good, but it was also our sin that hung Jesus there. We're as responsible for Jesus' death as the Jewish leaders were and as Pilate is. We're responsible. We're part of this sad scene where the creation bays for the blood of its innocent king. What a tremendously sad day this was. By this time, Pilate's fed up and he says, you deal with it. I'm done with it. Sort it out yourselves. But the Jewish leaders then respond with something that chills Pilate to the core. Did you see what it was? Have a look at verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Pilate hears that Jesus claims to be the Son of God and he's terrified. I mean, clearly he was already a bit unsettled by Jesus. He realized there was something special going on here. But now he hears this and he's terrified because according to his pagan Roman worldview, there were myths of sons of gods coming down and walking the earth. And now he's scared that this is what Jesus is. And so he goes back in and his questioning intensifies. He wants to know as much about Jesus as he can. But did you see how Jesus responds? He remains silent. And this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, where our innocent king is silent as he's led to the slaughter. Pilate can't kind of comprehend this. He's, he's shocked. He's like, don't, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I'm the one that can save you? Say something. To which Jesus replies. Have a look at what Jesus says in verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one that handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. See, God's the one that gives out power. And Pilate wouldn't have it if it weren't for God, if it weren't in God's hands. And Jesus reminds Pilate that. But at the same time, Pilate is still guilty. The religious leaders might be guilty of a greater sin, but Pilate is still guilty. He still sees this innocent king and he won't release him. He refuses to follow after this king. And it reminds us that this is the same for us. If we don't acknowledge the king, if we don't follow after him, then in the same way, we're guilty as well. This is a big deal. This is not just choosing a political party to follow or a footballer to follow. This is a big deal. It is sinful to reject this innocent king. Well, this whole tragic event then comes to a head as this innocent king becomes a condemned king. Pilate wants to release him, but the religious leaders know how to get to Pilate. 
They know that for Pilate, his career is his weak spot. That's the line he won't go over to, won't go over. And so they say to him, you're, if you let Jesus go, you're no friend of Caesar. And Pilate knows if he lets Jesus go, there'll always be whispers. He had an enemy king, someone who was a rival to Caesar. It was in his hands and yet he let him go. Can he actually be trusted? Is he actually a friend of Caesar? That's what he'll face, those constant whispers, if he lets Jesus go. It's political suicide to align with Jesus. See, he has that line and he won't cross it. And it's worth us thinking, is there a line that we won't cross? Is there a cost that's too big for us to give up to follow after Jesus? For Pilate, that's it. But he still takes one last opportunity. He tries to use the visual representation of his power. He sits on the judgment seat and he presents Jesus again and he says, Behold your king. But still they won't budge. Have a look at verse 15. They yell out, Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Then they call out some of the, perhaps the most tragic words of the whole Bible. We have no king other than Caesar. This is God's people who should have no king other than God. And yet they reject God and they reject God's chosen Messiah and instead bow the knee to a worldly king. What a tragic event this whole thing is. And then finally, Pilate relents. And Jesus becomes the condemned king. Even though Jesus doesn't deserve it, even though there's no charge against him, still Pilate relents. Have a look at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This otherworldly king, this innocent king, now a condemned king. Condemned to devastation and death. Condemned to the humiliation and the horror of a crucifixion. This king like no other. Condemned to an unjust death. But he wasn't just condemned with no purpose. Because the incredible thing about this condemned king is that he's also a saviour king. He was condemned and died to save his people. Even though he was completely and utterly innocent, still he laid down his life for the sake of us, his people. And ultimately, this is why Jesus is a king worth following. Because what other kind of king, what other kind of leader would lay down their life for you? I mean, what kind of leader does that? Would your boss at work lay down their life for you? Would Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese die for your sake? Would that teacher you admired and looked up to at school be willing to lay down their life so that you might live? I mean, what kind of leader lays down their life for their followers? But that's what kind of leader Jesus is, a saviour king who died to save his people. And isn't that the kind of person that we want to follow? Isn't that the kind of king that we want to follow? Someone who would lay down their life for us. 
Someone who would willingly submit themselves to condemnation and death to save us. Isn't that who we want to follow? Someone who would save us not just from death, but from spiritual death. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. And all we need to do to get that salvation is to accept him as our king, to follow him, to walk in his footsteps, to trust that he is a king worth following and to follow him. What incredible news this saviour king brings. And of course, truly following Jesus means walking in his footsteps. It means walking in the footsteps of this saviour king, because that's what we do with those we follow. We imitate them. We want to be like them. We say what they say. We wear what they wear. We do what they do. And in the same way, that should be what we do with Jesus. Following Jesus means following in his footsteps. It means thinking what he thinks. It means acting in the way that he acts. It means loving what he loves. It means hating what he hates. Not because it earns us salvation. He's already given us that out of his grace and mercy. But out of gratefulness, out of thankfulness. Because he's given us so much. Therefore, out of thankfulness, our hearts overflow. Because following Jesus isn't about dutiful obedience. It's about a loving relationship built on thankfulness. Because this saviour king was condemned to save me. I follow him and I love him with all my heart. Because this saviour king was condemned to save me. I follow him and I treasure my relationship with him above everything else. Because this saviour king was condemned to save me. I follow him and I yearn to live a life pleasing to him. Because when I understand who this saviour king is, what he's done for me, then how could I do anything else? How could I do anything other than follow after him? Who do we follow? Surely the answer must be King Jesus. Why would we settle for anyone else? Why would we settle for second best? Why would we settle for anyone other than King Jesus, the King like no other? I'm going to pray and thank God for Jesus. Please pray with me.